Go ahead and get your books out. <clears throat> if you don't have a book, then uh, Brother Brian's got some of these, some of these lessons. Lesson five we're on today, and like we've been doing, we'll probably take a couple of weeks to get through this. But roadblocks, roadblocks. We mentioned uh, last week, maybe the week before, that we were going to talk about this um, in this next lesson, and that's where we are. So Ephesians chapter four. Go ahead and turn over there. Now, I've not actually done it myself. I've heard a lot about it. But if you drive throughout Palestine today, uh, you're going to run into a lot of roadblocks. Uh, they have, you know, those, they're not construction roadblocks that you might find in the United States. They're military roadblocks, and they're set up as, as like a checkpoint. And when you go through these checkpoints, you have to, you know, you have to present ID. You have to show who you are. You've got to, um, you know, have papers and all of that kind of stuff. Your vehicle is subject to be searched and whatever else. But... For Americans, checkpoints in Israel, you know, when you go over there, they can feel pretty tense. It's, it's unfamiliar to us. We don't go through those checkpoints, those roadblocks very often. Uh, you're not used to seeing guys standing out there with armored vehicles and, and machine guns. And, you know, uh, but roadblocks in, in the Holy Land are, are pretty common. Uh, in fact, they're a lot like conflicts in marriage. They're part of life. Um, they have the potential to either escalate into a full-blown combat, or they can diffuse into nothing, uh, nothing more than just a little bit of a delay. And I think the way that we respond to it is, uh, has a lot to do with it. And I think the difference between the two is that the, the physical roadblocks are out in the open. Everybody can see a physical roadblock. The problem with roadblocks in marriage is, for the most part, they're not very visible, uh, especially to people on the outside looking in, um, but even sometimes to the, to the couples that are in these things, you know, we might not recognize it as a roadblock when that's actually exactly what it is. And so the difference between a strong marriage and a weak marriage is how we handle those, uh, how the, how we handle those roadblocks, how we handle those conflicts within the marriage. There was, uh, as a new bride, Edna moved into the small home with her husband on his ranch. He had a ranch when they got married, and so she put a shoebox on the shelf in her closet, and she asked that her husband never look in that shoebox. And he agreed, and for 50 years they were married, and even longer, and for all of that time he never looked in that shoebox. And she was on her deathbed. She was, she was you know, not doing well, and so he was kind of trying to put some of their things in order, and he was going through some of the things in the closet, and he saw that shoebox, and he had seen it there for many, many years, but he thought, you know what, I wonder if this is something in there that's really important that, that we need to talk about, that we need to discuss, and so he went to Edna, and he said, you know, um, can you tell me what's in this thing? I mean, is it something that I'm going to need to know about when you're gone? And she said, look, my mom gave me that shoebox on the day we got married, and she told me to make a doily to help me ease my frustration every time I got mad at you. And she opened up that box, and inside that box was $82,500 and two doilies. And Jack, he was pretty, pretty pleased with himself. All of these years, every time she got mad at me, she put a doily in that box, and there's only two, two doilies in that box. And he said that. He said, well, that's, that's pretty good all of these years, and there's only two doilies in there? But what, what's with all the cash? She said, every time I made a doily, I went and sold it. <laughs> $82,500 in cash. That's the money that she made selling the doilies. But what happens, what, what makes a Christian marriage distinct is not that conflict never happens. 
uh, it's impossible for two people to completely share their lives with each other for any period of time without running into some kind of conflict. I mentioned that last week about the idea that sometimes we have that. Uh, maybe you can remember back to when you were in college. I was just talking about this yesterday with some of the, uh, or I forget who we were talking to, but I said, man, this year will be 15 years since I've been out of college. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot of time to maybe some of you, but to me, I said, man, I can't believe it's been 15 years already. Um, but I still remember what it was like in college. And, you know, even though you like your roommates and things, you're going to run into conflicts with them just because you're in close quarters with somebody that much, you know, and the same thing happens in a marriage. Um, you know, the difference is how Christians respond to that conflict. And if you learn to respond to disagreements in a godly way, if you learn to respond to disagreements in a thoughtful and maybe a resolution-oriented way, then you're going to come to a resolution very much uh, a whole lot quicker than you would if you just didn't have any tools and any way to process working through those things together. And by the way, when you process those things together, when you work through those things together, then you're going to build your confidence in each other, and you're going to strengthen your marriage. So conflicts are not bad things at all. They're going to happen. You can either, they can either become bad things, or you can use them to be great things. You can use them to be the building blocks that makes your marriage what it needs to be and what it could be. So um, in the last lesson, we looked at some principles for Christian communication. And obviously, you know, that's, that is uh, communication a lot of times can create some of these roadblocks, or lack of communication can create some of these roadblocks. But in this lesson, we're going to look at and, and kind of apply the principles in relation to conflict. So number one is this, how conflict begins. How conflict begins. Do you remember your first fight in your marriage? I, I don't, I mean, we... And I'm not, you know, I'm not just saying this. We have very few fights in our marriage. And I don't, I know it was a long time before we really even had our first big disagreement. Um, I mean, I've only knocked her down once or twice, I think, in our whole marriage. But <laughs> she's knocked me down way more than that. I'm kidding. We have not. But, you know, we think about our conflicts in, in and, in, you know, they're about who does the housework, who has to do this, who has to do that, and, you know, who forgot to do something or you know, where we'll eat out or things like that. And I suppose those kind of things can create conflict. But in reality, most conflicts are over a difference in perspective or really even an underlying issue. Uh, so, so what does cause conflict in a marriage? Uh, there are a lot of surface causes, but we'll look at a few things here. I don't even remember. There's, there's five of them. That's right. That are several common root issues that cause conflict in a marriage. And the first one really is, uh, first one and the second one really go hand in hand very much, and, and I think have a lot to do with it, but the first one is selfishness. Selfishness. Uh, that's not to say that every disagreement should be solved by one spouse just continually yielding and saying, okay, okay, I'm not going to be selfish, so you have your way, you know? Um, it, it Acting like it does not matter to him or her what happens just for the sake of, of a resolution, but often a, a, a conflict is caused because we care more about ourselves than we do about our spouse, um, at least at that moment. And selfishness, it's, it's, selfishness is not the absence of love. It doesn't mean that you don't love your spouse, but I think it's self-love. It means you love yourself. That's why the word selfishness, you love yourself more than you love your spouse, at least in that moment. James chapter 4 and verse number 1, and we have this given to us there. But it says in verse number one, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members. 
it's our insistence on having what we want, uh, even at the expense of the other person's happy, happiness. That, that can create conflict in a marriage. Um, selfishness seems to have been the cause of this conflict at the church at Philippi. We see that in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 2. I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Right? Two chapters previously, he wrote a couple verses that we've already looked at, but Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I still remember this like it was yesterday. I think I was in fifth and sixth grade Sunday school class, and the Sunday school teacher read that verse, and he said, that doesn't mean that you can cheat in class. Not saying look, everybody, look at everybody else's paper and not your own, you know. That's saying to put other people in front of you. That's saying that you shouldn't be selfish, not just, you know, out and about, but especially with those that are the closest to you, especially in your marriage, especially with your spouse. For your marriage to be a Philippians 4-2 marriage, be of the same mind in the Lord, you're going to need to practice Philippians 2.4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Uh, we have to care more about the other than we do about ourselves. And right along with that, the second one is this, pride. Pride. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse number 10. And, and really, there's no better root cause, I think, of anything that is conflict, conflict in a marriage than this. Look what he's, I mean, it's, it's about as clear as it can be in Proverbs 13, verse 10. Only by pride cometh contention, for with the well-advised is wisdom. That puts the, that hits the nail right on the head. I mean, only by pride cometh contention. So if there is contention in our marriage, it's, it's rooted in selfishness, but it's, it's also rooted in pride. Conflict and contention do not have to be synonymous. You can have conflict. It's possible to disagree with somebody without being contentious. Um, but, but constant conflict usually involves contention. And that's what it says. Only by pride cometh contention. You don't have to, well, I'm, I'm humble, so, you know, I don't agree, but I, I better not say anything about it. No, you can have a disagreement without being contentious. And when, that, when it turns to contention, it's because of, of pride. Pride makes us un, unwilling to admit when we're wrong, makes us unwilling to acknowledge another person's point of view. And then rather than apologizing, we defend our behavior. We start to make all the excuses. Where there is contention in a relationship, pride is always, always at work. Here's the third thing that causes, that is one of the root causes for conflict in a marriage, and that is pettiness. Pettiness. Some things are really too small to argue about. You know, and, and I think that comes with maturity. The older you get and, the, and the, the more mature your relationship gets, the less you argue about the things that just absolutely do not matter. Um, but pathological pettiness turns every disagreement into right versus wrong. Turns every disagreement with, with one person having to be proven right. And that's, that's usually the root cause of selfishness and pride. I mean, all of these things are building off each other. And we're really talking about one main thing, and it's all about me. It's all me. I have to be right. And that's rooted in pride, and that's rooted in selfishness. Uh, but it's pettiness. Proverbs chapter 20, and verse 3. It's an honor for a man to cease from strife, but every fool will be meddling. It's, I mean, it, it's, it's as clear as it can be. Some things are better left alone, especially if they're really insignificant, especially if it doesn't make a difference, and other than someone's ego, who's right or wrong. Here's another one, and there's actually two that go along with these, but they're, they're right along the same lines of each other, but fear and insecurity. That is the fourth root cause 
of conflict in marriage. When someone's been hurt, um, feels a conflict coming on, they usually withdraw to avoid it rather than to come to a resolution. And unfortunately, I, I think problems left unsolved or with only surface solutions usually fester, they grow, they get bigger and bigger, and that increasing uh, tension eventually is going to blow up. It's eventually going to show itself, and it's usually going to be a whole lot worse than just a regular, have we dealt with this right away and taken care of it right away. Um, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 kind of gives an answer to fear. He says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. So where, where, the, where fear is involved, couple need to, couples need to identify that fear and, you know, solve that conflict and assure the other that whatever way the conflict is solved, their, their love is non-negotiable. I'm not going to stop loving you. I'm not going to think any different of you. I'm not going to stop caring about you. But, but that fear and that insecurity causes a lot of those things. And that's the thing. There usually is in a marriage, especially in a contentious marriage, one or the other that always just backs off for the sake of unity or for the sake of just ending the resolution or, or re ending the conflict and coming to a resolution. But that's not solving the problem. That's not solving the issue. And it's because of fear or insecurity that these things happen. But and, and we're going to talk about this in just a, a few minutes. Or maybe if we don't get to it this week, then we'll definitely get to it by next week. But backing off and saying nothing does not help a conflict resolve either because all you're doing is kicking the, kicking the can down the road to the next conflict. And now you've got two cans that you're trying to kick down the road. And then you have three and then four and then five. And pretty soon you're kicking a whole you know, case of cans down the road just for the sake of, and it's eventually going to come to a big head and cause a lot of noise, um, and that's not helping either. So fear and insecurity. And then here's another one, and, 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 and I think that on top of all of the rest, um, pride and pettiness and selfishness and all of those things, this is the, the very root cause, but that is satanic attack. Um, there can be no doubt that marriage faces enemies that are designed and empowered by satanic influence. Um, because marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, we see that in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32, we've read that already, in fact, you, you can look back over, maybe you're there, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Marriage is a picture of Jesus Christ's relationship to his church. He gave his life for the church. Of course, Satan wants to attack that. He wants to attack anything that has anything to do with Jesus Christ. Satan hates it. He wants to destroy your marriage. And so every time a Christian family is broken, the testimony of Christ is harmed. Every time, uh, every time a, an argument spills out into, into the public between a husband and a wife, um, you know, the, the, the cause of Christ is diminished. And every time a couple lets conflict grow between them, their own walk with the Lord is harmed. And, and the devil knows that. And if he can, you know, how, how many times have you gotten into an argument with your husband or wife and then felt like going and reading your Bible or praying? Right? You don't. And sometimes it takes days to get out of that mindset. And that's exactly what the devil wants. He wants it to be that way. He wants to, to cause those conflicts that keep us from 
being what we can be for God. We have an enemy that's out to destroy our relationship. He says that in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, and I know most of us probably could quote this verse, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And so recognizing that shouldn't make you afraid uh, or see a demon behind every bush, but it should add urgency to dealing with conflict in a godly way rather than dealing with it in pride or dealing with it in selfishness or pretending that no conflict exists at all. And, you know, so one or more, even all five of these causes are usually the heart of ongoing conflict in a marriage. And usually it's not just one. Usually it's at least two or three or four and sometimes all five of these things that are that are at the root cause of conflict in a marriage. And a lot of times they, they, they seem small. What's a little selfishness in a marriage that otherwise is doing okay, right? They seem small, but if these unhealthy roots are allowed to stay in that marriage without being addressed, then they're going to, you know, the relationship is going to weaken over time, and those roots eventually grow into plants. And they're going to cause... Um, huge problem in, in our marriage. So the second thing is then how conflict escalates. How conflict escalates. Here's another place that I've never been, but Belfast, Ireland. Um, they say that throughout the entire country, you'll find fences and walls that are erected to separate neighbors, separate neighborhoods, uh, and they call them peace walls. But these peace walls are uh, P-E-A-C-E, these peace walls are a result of a lot of different conflicts and things. And, and a lot of the conflict in Ireland over the years has been politically motivated between the Catholics and the Protestants. And so, you know, everything that they do in their parliament and, their, in, and a lot of their political aspects have to do with the Catholics and the Protestants. And so it, it governs, yes, everything religiously, obviously, but it even governs everything politically there. And so... Um, what happened is that the troubles, as they called them, were uh, religious-based wars that went on for, for many, many years in and in a series of conflict that lasted over 30 years and finally ended with what is called the Belfast Resolution in 1998. During the troubles, as they called them, there was a lot of tempers that were just, they were hot. There was a lot of sparks that flew all the way across the city and everything else. And so, so the solution what is, uh, was what is now known as these peace walls. Um, or peace lines. And throughout Belfast, you see fences and walls just spontaneously there to separate Catholics and Protestants. And, you know, Catholic neighborhoods were separated from, from Protestant neighborhoods. Catholic neighbors were separated from Protestant neighbors. And these peace lines, I mean, they, they, they ranged in length from a, a couple hundred yards to several miles long to separate different parts of this country. They're made of iron, they're made of brick, they're made of steel, they're made of whatever they can find, and some of them are up to 25 feet high. It's peace walls. Their name is deceiving, though. Nothing about those walls created peace. They only kept a sort of truce that separated angry people. And any time they walked on the outside of those walls, the conflict always spilled out into the streets. That's not conflict resolution. That's conflict avoidance. And that's exactly what happens so many times in a marriage. We're not resolving the conflict, we're avoiding it. And by avoiding it, we say, well, we're keeping peace. That's not keeping peace. Maybe for a short time it is, but eventually it's going to spill out into the streets. And so ineffective responses to marriage conflict are like erecting walls between you and your spouse. You know, when you put those walls up, it might, it might give you a little bit of a ceasefire at that moment, um, but it can't resolve the issue. And the more of these walls you build, the more difficult it is to have that intimacy in a marriage that should be created in your relationship. 
Um, so what are ineffective responses to conflict in a marriage? There's 10 of them, but we're going to go through them all pretty quickly. First one is this, failure to acknowledge the problem. Failure to acknowledge the problem. That is an ineffective response to conflict in a marriage. Denial is dangerous to re your relationship. If you're going to deny that there's a problem or deny that there's an issue, uh, it, could, it could be only one spouse. It could be both spouses. But when one spouse at least is not going to acknowledge that a conflict, conflict exists, it damages the relationship. And it discourages the other spouse. 1 John 1, 6 kind of gives us this warning concerning our relationship with the Lord to not allow sin to go unaddressed because it is ignoring how it affects our relationship with him. 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, that, that, that image that we're given of, of walking in darkness versus walking in light is obviously, um, you know, sin and, and righteousness, sin and holiness or whatever else. But I think that we can apply that to the marriage relationship too. Too many couples will for months or years allow that serious conflict to continue in that marriage while the whole time they, they put on their church face every Sunday, <laughs> pretend that nothing's wrong, and then they go home and everything blows up. And um, another way that that happens is when one spouse says, you know, what's wrong? We need to take care of this. We need to get this figured out. We need to talk about something, and the other one says, no, nothing's wrong. But both spouses know that something's wrong, and nothing's done about it. There has to be a conflict resolution. And if, and if we fail to acknowledge the problem, then, of course, there's not going to be a resolution to the problem. That's one way that is, that's one ineffective response is failure to acknowledge the problem. The second thing is withdrawal from real relationship development. Withdrawal, withdrawal. From real relationship development. A lot of couples come to the point where they decide that, that intimacy, that oneness that we're supposed to have in a marriage between a husband and wife are just beyond reach. Um, so perhaps for the sake of their children or because they have a conviction that you shouldn't get divorced, they decide to stay together in that marriage. But they withdraw their spirit emotionally. They withdraw spiritually. They withdraw physically. And, and they live in the same house, but they settle for less than what God intended marriage to be. Um, and I think there are so many families, so many couples that are living in that state. God wants marriage to be something that is enjoyable. God wants marriage to be that relationship that, that just, you know, um, upstages every other relationship that you have in your life. But you know, that's, that's where a lot of times um, unfaithfulness comes in. Because, well, we, we don't believe in divorce, so we're not going to get divorced. Or, or you know, we don't, we're, we're just going to stay together because you, could you imagine what it would do to our kids? We're going to stay together. But they're emotionally detached. They're physically detached. They're spiritually detached. And so they go somewhere to find that. And many times they find it at some, with, you know, with somebody at work or they find it with somebody online or something like that. And that's where that unfaithfulness starts. And it's, it's, I'm not. It's, it's the fault of both. But Scripture, the Bible, instructs us to follow after peace. Rather than withdrawing for the sake of avoiding that conflict, we need to pursue peace. Withdrawing from a conflict is not bringing about peace. Um, and so we have to actively work to resolve those disagreements and work to build each other up. And that, that requires investing in the relationship. So Romans chapter 14 and verse 19, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. Things wherewith one may edify another. 
That's something that we have to actively pursue. And so one of the ineffective responses is to withdraw from that real relationship development. The third thing is this. An ineffective response is to spiritualize the problem. Spiritualizing the problem. Sometimes a spouse will say, well, the devil is just fighting us. And he is. I mean, we, we just talked about that. Um, spiritual talk about the problem isn't the same thing as rolling up your sleeves and dealing with it. We have to be alert from attacks from the devil. He's going to attack us. He wants to destroy our relationship. But we also need to take responsibility for resolving the conflict. Well, the devil's just after us is not a conflict resolution. It might be one of the causes of the conflict, but it's not a resolution in the conflict. Here's another one. And for lack of a better term, gunny sacking. You know what a gunny sack is. You just carry anything and everything in there. Um, it's amazing how well our memories can work when it comes to holding on to past faults of our spouse, right? Some are better at this than others. Um, you know, you keep those past hurts, you build them up, you keep them in a certain place like, like somebody that's carrying a gunny sack full of things, right? And you can't wait to just open that thing up and share everything that's in it. And, you know, no good can come from that. Once a matter has been addressed and forgiven, it should never come up again. Um, and if it hasn't been addressed and forgiven, then that's the first step. It needs to be addressed and it needs to be forgiven. But once that happens, it should never come up again. That's the way that God deals with our sins, by the way. He says that in Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. If God does that for us, who is the ultimate judge, who has never sinned, who doesn't deserve to, to forget, then sh we should be doing that for others, for, especially for our spouse. Here's another ineffective response. Letter E, attacking the person instead of the problem. We spent a good bit of time talking about this last week and the week before. You have a gift from God in the person that you marry. Um, attacking the person you married devalues God's gift to you, and it undermines your relationship. When it comes to conflict, we have to work together to seek out the causes rather than turning your arguments against your spouse. And yes, maybe they are part of the cause, but it's not the spouse that you hate. It's the problem that's created between you that you hate. And so attack the problem, not the person. Here's number five, or six, F, blaming your spouse. I'm the way I am because of the stress that she puts me under. If she wouldn't treat me that way, I wouldn't treat her that way. I wouldn't lose my temper if she didn't annoy me so much. Right? That's putting the blame on the other spouse. And that tactic goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, Adam blamed his sin on Eve, and Eve turned and blamed her sin on the serpent, right? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 12 and 13. I mean, we, we won't take the time to read that because we're, we're running out of time, but it's part of our fallen nature to pass the buck to somebody else. We instinctively try to avoid that responsibility for our words and our actions, but you can't resolve conflict until you accept responsibility for the responses and resolve to be part of that solution. Here's another ineffective response, desiring to win at any cost. And again, this goes back to selfishness. It goes back to pride. It goes back to pettiness. There are some arguments that are better lost. Um, nobody really wins when it comes to marital strife. Um, you may think that you have won a battle when you've really just robbed a piece of your spouse's heart. It's not worth it. And that's an ineffective response. Always remember that your relationship is far more important than any one person who wins an argument. 
1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Here's another one, giving in to avoid conflict. On the opposite end of that spectrum, somebody that gives in, not in a humble sacrificial way, but simply to make the conflict stop. Somebody who's, who just avoids disagreement by saying, fine, whatever you want. Right? That's, that is not resolving the conflict. That's avoiding the conflict. And it's not contributing to building a relationship. Um, if you're given into the spirit, like we just read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, avoiding that because you're in humility saying, okay, what you want is what I want. Then that's one thing. But many times, uh, if you're given in as an escape for addressing the real issues, that approach is going to bring a long-term damage to your relationship. Here is the next one, buying a gift. You know, the, the picture of a man bringing home a dozen roses to his wife to get out of the doghouse, you know? Um, I mean, we see that all the time. You hear about that all the time. Well, I brought, I brought her a gift to try to get out of the doghouse, you know? I just, it, it does, but hey, hey, the only other thing you can do is, is build a better doghouse, right? <laughs> that's why I built that big, that's why I built a big treehouse on the other side of our property for the kids. You thought I was building it for the kids. I was building a better doghouse. I'm kidding, but, you know, and, and again, sometimes, it's true that sometimes a gift communicates love, and, and, and when that gift is given with a sincere apology, uh, it can be a great thing. Uh, but you can't buy your way out of dealing with the conflict. If you're in the middle of a conflict and, oh, well, let me give you a dozen roses and now everything is resolved, if you haven't resolved the conflict, it's going to come back and you're going to deal with it again. So that's an ineffective response to a certain extent. It, it does help. It does show that person, look, I know we're in a conflict, but I still love you. Um, Proverbs 15, 16. Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Using a gift as a substitute for addressing the real issues is doing the same thing. Just kicking the can down the road and, and it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Cheapens your relationship over time too. Because it just feels like, well, as long as I just throw money at it, it's going to be fine. You know? And that's not the root cause. Here's another one and, and the last one that we'll talk about for now. Becoming angry. That is, that is definitely an ineffective response. The deception of anger is that sometimes an angry outburst is going to quiet the resolution at hand, and sometimes it does. When one spouse gets mad and raises their voice, the other spouse is so surprised by it, maybe, that it, that it resolves the conflict for a moment. But this kind of solving conflicts brings deeper harm to the relationships and many times deeper issues later on. James chapter 1 and verse 20, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Another danger is that it tends to escalate the problem. When you raise your voice, generally the spouse is going to raise their voice. And now you've got a big escalation that you can't get out of, right? Um, Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1, a soft answer turneth away wrath, right? But grievous words stir up anger. If you continue to respond in anger, you're going to continue to stir the pot of anger in that relationship. If you choose to humble yourself, respond with a soft answer, your words are going to begin to soften your spouse. And I know, right? The best thing is the greatest comeback in the world. I said it. I got the best one in there. Did that help resolve the conflict? Oh, you might have won that battle, but a soft answer. That's, the, that's, a, that's a hard thing to do when you're in an argument a lot of times is to give a soft answer. But a soft answer turns away wrath. God's given us the building materials for our relationship. Your words, your actions, and your attitude. 
Your words, your action, and your attitude. Those are the building blocks. And you can use those things to either build a, a peace wall. You can use that to build a fence. You can use that to build a, a, a barrier between you and your wife. Or you can use those to build a foundation. You can use those to build your relationship. God's given us the tools. It's just a matter of how we use those things. God wants us to use these building materials to build not a wall, but a home. And that's what happens. That's what we can use it for. Instead of using your responses to put distance between you and your spouse, we can use them to put protections around us both, bring us closer to each other. But to do that, we have to be willing to respond in grace. And that brings us to the last thing, and we'll talk about this next week, how conflict resolves. How can we resolve conflict? So we've talked about what brings conflict. We've talked about some ineffective responses to conflict. And so basically what we're going to talk about next week is some effective responses to conflict. How do we resolve those things? But we'll get to that next week. All right? Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Give me thank you for how good you are to us. I thank you for the relationships and the marriages that you've given us in this church. I pray that you'd help us to continue to strive to build and grow them to the, into the relationships that you want them to be. And that together we can do many more things for you. Thank you for what you do for us. And again, I pray that you'd be with this service in the next hour. You'd fill us with your power and that you'd open our hearts to what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.